Hi, everybody. Joe Kim here. Our next guest was one of the old school pioneers of mobile free-to-play as part of the founding team of TapJoy, CEO and co-founder of GameView Studios, the makers of TapFish, if you remember. And GameView was acquired by DNA. Riz then became a GM of DNA, then became an advisor and board member to a bunch of different companies, did some venture stuff. And I think, Riz, you also did some angel investing. But today, you are the executive director at Play Labs at MIT and doing a lot of writing. Now, with respect to, the, to writing, Riz has written three books. First, Treasure Hunt, Follow Your Inner Clues to Find True Success. Second, Startup Myths and Models, What You Won't Learn in Business School. And most interestingly, The Simulation Hypothesis. An MIT computer scientist shows why AI, quantum physics, and Eastern mystics all agree we are in a video game. So in addition to his books, Riz writes articles, including most recently a piece for NBC News titled, Trump Uses TikTok and WeChat to Challenge China. Welcome to a new conflict, the App Wars. Please welcome Riz Verk. How's it going, Riz? Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. I thought we could kind of maybe go in reverse chronological order through some of your writing, which you know I personally found incredibly incredibly interesting and i thought we could first start with the the article that you wrote the coming us uh, about the coming us china app wars and maybe we could start with that in terms of like what do you mean by the app wars what's happening and what are maybe some of the potential implications of what could potentially happen based on current events yeah sure and you know by now most people have uh probably heard about the ongoing saga, at least in the game industry, uh, of, uh, or in the mobile you know, app industry, of uh, Trump, uh, the Trump administration banning several Chinese apps and then kind of going back on it and then judges coming up to uh, giving orders to stop the ban. Uh, and so, you know, I wrote this piece to kind of put some perspective that it's interesting that mobile apps have become, you know, such an important part of how we consume content, how we share content uh, to the point where it's really being used as an arena for superpower posturing, you know. So if you go back to, you know, the Cold War, right, there was a lot of posturing between the United States and the Soviet Union to the point where, you know, we were boycotting each other's Olympics. Like, you know, now I'm dating myself here a little bit, but <laughs> going back to like the 1980 Olympics and then the, the Soviets boycotting the 84 Olympics. And so, you know, what happens with superpowers is, uh, you know, getting into direct conflicts is um, uh, too devastating, right? And so there's always proxy wars, whether it's, you know, the Korean War, Vietnam, et cetera, or the proxies move into other arenas. And so I thought it was interesting that with this recent kind of trade war going on with China against that backdrop, and China as sort of an emerging superpower and and the U.S. as an existing superpower, uh, that mobile apps have entered into that fray. And so really, I wrote the piece to kind of explore that idea that apps are now strategic to government uh, economic policy, but also to security, et cetera. And so, you know, the stated reason for banning these apps was that, well, these are Chinese companies, right? And therefore, they are under the jurisdiction of the Chinese government, which means that the Communist Party and the Chinese defense establishment has access to all your data, right? And so that was kind of the ostensible reason for the ban. And, you know, there was a uh, a long discussion that's still ongoing about 
you know, well, if U.S. companies were to buy the assets of the U.S. assets of TikTok and set up a separate company and have it hosted in the U.S. And, you know, originally Microsoft made a bid for it. uh, And then Oracle and Walmart made a bid for it. And then there's been conflicting uh, views on, you know, what that actually means. You know, TikTok is supposed to, was supposed to actually keep a majority share uh, of the company, but since TikTok is owned forty percent by U.S. investors, if you count Oracle and Walmart's new investment and the new company they're setting up, and you count the U.S. investors in TikTok, theoretically they own the majority. And so there's been a lot of back and forth on that. And so you know this is a story that that's ongoing and evolving. But really, you know, I, I wrote the piece more uh, to put this into perspective, to to show how you know mobile apps aren't just for geeks anymore, <laughs> and you know Washington, Beijing, and and other uh, countries like India, for example, which has also banned TikTok. Now, when India banned TikTok, they also banned fifty seven other Chinese apps. So it looked like it was a a, a more of a um, the reason they did it was because of some policies that they have, and they decided to apply those policies across many other, uh, many of the Chinese apps. Whereas in the U.S., it's TikTok and WeChat. And so WeChat is used, you know, uh, heavily in China. They have over a billion monthly active users. Most of the users in the U.S. are people who are basically communicating back with people in China. <laughs> so they tend to be, you know, Chinese nationals and, and people of Chinese ethnic origin who are communicating. Uh, but, uh, you know, TikTok, the, the, the rumors are, well, Trump got really pissed off at TikTok, right? <laughs> because it was... Yeah, the Tulsa rally, right? It was used by a bunch of kids to, you know, go spread the news that they wanted to buy, you know, tickets or get tickets for his rally and then nobody showed up. Uh, and, you know, I, I wouldn't put that past Trump. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of what really got under his skin. And then they said, well, you can't just ban TikTok. You got to ban somebody else. He said, okay, well, who else can we ban? Oh, WeChat. Why don't we add that <laughs> to the list? Now, that's a rumor. I can't say if that's, you know, the real reason they did it. But that was, you know, one of the, the things that was floating around, you know, when I wrote this piece. So, so Riz, when you think about like a potential U.S.-China app war, and we're already seeing it kind of even play out even further in India, as you had mentioned, but like there's kind of like the Ray Dalio view, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with some of Ray Dalio's work, where he's kind of, he's kind of insinuating that just based on the longer term trends, like a conflict with China is inevitable. But how do you unbundle that from, because as you mentioned, are some of these actions against China because Trump's mad, because Trump's trying to help enrich his friend Larry Ellison at Oracle? Or, you know, it's like, so how much do you think is more structural and actually a long term, regardless of whether it's Trump or Biden or whoever, that there's going to be like this upcoming war versus is this just some just more of a temporary thing in your mind? Yeah, well, you know, the current situation with TikTok obviously has all these other all these other factors, which when, when you're talking about Trump, there's always other factors, right? And so there's the Larry Ellison, you know, his buddies, you know, the very few buddies in Silicon Valley that he has. <laughs> um, and, you know, there was this issue that I talked about, about young people who generally, you know, uh, but there's also, if you recall, uh, just around the same time that uh, Trump announced that he, you know, this deal could, could, uh, push off the ban, he announced a, a, a re-education effort, right, for the youth of America. 
so that the youth of America can learn real history, right? Which, uh, you know, the more the official story. And so there's this sense, I think, you know, within the within Trump world anyway, that people are, are getting a, uh, a less of a sanitized history of, uh, you know, slavery and other things uh, in the U.S. And that's causing young people to vote a certain way and, and, and you know, socially be a certain way. Uh, and if you remember with the TikTok deal, when he announced it, he also said, and they're going to put $5 billion into my re-education fund. <laughs> and of course, TikTok said, huh? We don't, we don't remember saying we're going to put $5 billion into that, uh, you know, so there's a lot of back and forth there. So with Trump, there's always other factors that are at play. Right. But I, I do think this is a long-term trend. And, you know, I, I can't say that I'm totally familiar with, with, with uh, you know, Ray Dalio's work, but but I've certainly heard of, heard of him. And, uh, you know, I don't think that a military conflict is necessarily inevitable, right? You know, with the Soviet Union, we never had a direct military conflict. Mm-hmm. We did have proxy wars. And so right. I think proxy wars are inevitable. <laughs> I think, you know, when you've got superpowers exerting their influence and, you know, with the U.S. in particular, you have to do with different administrations, you know, the commitment to our other Asian partners outside of China kind of waxes and wanes. But I think that the bigger issue right now is with, you know, Trump got elected partly on a populist movement. And part of that movement is we're going to stop you know, China from, um, you know, stealing our money and stealing our jobs, right? And so, you know, there is a broader context, even within the Trump administration, which this, the app wars are fitting into. But I think, you know, more and more, uh, if you think about what used to be banned in the old days, right, it was content, right? A lot of Western content was banned, you know, in the Soviet Union and in communist countries, and today, you know, the internet is there. You've got the great Chinese firewall. So you've got, you know, content being banned that way. So that was kind of like the, the year 2000 solution is the, the Chinese firewall to ban content. Now the year 2020 solution is starting to be ban apps from other countries, right? Uh, and, and it's not just India. Uh, Europe is, in fact, uh, you know, investigating TikTok's data practices, right? And with the U.S. ban, it's hard to separate out what's real. Like, is there a real security threat? Are they actually worried about data or is it all these other factors? But, you know, if you, if you think of it in a broader context, you know, India is a rising economic superpower. Um, and, you know, Europe, if you can think of it as a consolidated economy, is definitely an economic superpower. And so they are also looking at the practices. They haven't banned TikTok yet. I, at least I haven't heard that if they had. But India had and Pakistan just banned TikTok recently. So there may be something to some of the security concerns. But, you know, the suspicion is that those weren't really well thought out. Like even a lot of uh, security analysts, you know, when they commented on it, were like, yeah, it's possible someday that it could lead to something. Uh, You know, the Chinese will have information on what a bunch of kids are doing. But I I think the broader concern might actually be the content that comes across, right? So just like people have been wary of Facebook's algorithms and how we're selecting content to show, uh, so people are becoming more and more tribal on social media, and that's already affecting the elections. uh, And it's affecting people really, you know, getting into their own bubbles that, the next wave of that is going to come from from these kinds of apps, right? And so is it that if the Chinese government or the U.S. government, for example, is controlling um, uh, a company, and we know there has been collaboration between the U.S. security establishment and the tech firms, could they then not just get access to data, but could they start influencing people's perceptions, right? So the whole Russian scandal around the election 
was you know about social media, right? It was about bot farms taking fake stories and, and they're just uh, pushing them on social media and then they get shared ad infinitum within certain tribes. And so I think longer term, you know, that is a real concern for pretty much any country. And in a democracy, if you, your citizenry is supposed to be informed. So really, this is starting to become, uh, you know, even though the, the trade wars are more about economics, this is also starting to become a, about information and positioning and ideology. Uh, and I think that may be a, a valid longer term concern. I'm not sure that with TikTok, it's all user generated content primarily, but the algorithms that select you know, content could certainly be influenced. Uh, and that was one point of contention. So the points of contention for this new TikTok US company that's theoretically going to get around, was, was going to get around the band, uh, was move the data onto Oracle's cloud, which would be hosted in servers, you know, here in the U.S. But the uh, would the algorithms, you know, details of the algorithms be available to that company or would they stay in China? If they stay in China, then it's possible you could have subtle tweaks of the algorithms which start favoring certain types of content. And, and I mean, these apps have become so popular that that could, in fact, influence thinking, just like television influenced thinking of people, right? Depending on what you see. YouTube has influenced the thinking of a lot of people today. And there's a lot of concern uh, that, you know, whether it's fake news, whether you buy into the news or you think it's fake news, YouTube has been spreading a lot of stuff, right? Uh, and so that was, again, the 2000s solution. Now we're looking at, you know, the 2020s and beyond, which will be through these apps. And so I think it's a, whatever happens with the current ban and you know there's a bunch of legal arguments going back and forth whether the Trump administration can actually do the ban or not I, I think we're looking at a preview of coming attractions uh, around the world yeah. and when I try to think about more direct implications to for for example for a game studio and it seems like there are potentially some implications for example, from a data perspective, as you, as you mentioned, maybe we need to treat different geographies differently with respect to like where we're collecting the data and data policies. And maybe also to your point about the firewall or like having, I think what some people are calling splinternet, right? So if, if it's India and in the US and China are separate sort of markets for apps and like the Chinese developers won't be able to publish games here and vice versa as kind of what we're seeing with PUBG and some of the Chinese games currently, like, do you, like what other implications are, or how real do you think some of those implications are? Because certainly like, let's say in the shooter market, which is, you know, a genre that I compete in, or even in the MOBA space, if we were to block Chinese developers, and that basically frees up like a huge market for anyone to come in and things of that nature. So, right. So there's, yeah, I mean, so there's interesting economic implications there. I mean, it's the same thing of, you know, if China bans Google, that leaves, or, or Amazon or Facebook, that and Baidu blows up. And yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, Baidu, and then you've got Alibaba, you, you've got all these companies. And so it's a form of protectionism, right? right yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is where economic policy is, is important. Uh, we may be seeing a resurge of protectionism, certainly with, with you know, the trade war with China. Uh, and, and that may be the unstated reason to ban, for India, for example, to ban Chinese. I mean, there's already a rivalry between India and China, and that you know, they even have little skirmishes on the border because they share right. a border, right? right. Um, and I thought it was interesting that Pakistan just banned TikTok because they tend to get along with China, so there's less of the, uh, the geopolitical, you know, considerations there. But yeah, I think for app developers, you know, this is a concern uh, that we will end up with, you know, not just splinter net, but splinter 
um, app stores, right? Uh, I mean, app store is already kind of a walled garden, and there's already different policies. Uh, so, if, you know, like when we built uh, like a bingo app in one of my companies, like in Korea, we couldn't have the app because it wasn't allowed to have simulated gambling, even though it wasn't real money gambling. And so you already have an element of that where you have different policies in different countries. And so guys who run app stores like Apple and Google have to be, be wary of that. But it may go a lot further, right? So there, there may be a lot less if, – if this kind of thing stands, and I guess it will depend on the administration, but – you know, it, it does get into, you know, that, that kind of economic protectionism. And I think we'll start to see more of that right. uh, in the future. Maybe one last implication would be just ownership, right? Because Tencent owns Riot, owns a big chunk of Epic, a little over 50% of Supercell and things of that nature. So that might also be a potential implication. Uh, do, you, do you think that? Yeah, I could see down the road, you know, I mean, if, if that, those policies are actually – uh, turn into kind of real policies that go beyond one company, <laughs> beyond TikTok, right? And and WeChat that you could start to see it impact gaming uh, because you know there's a lot of data about American users that's technically owned by Chinese companies now, uh, and I think that's something that you know gamers know this, but a lot of the politicians don't know this because they don't play video games, so they're not really you know necessarily in that market. So something would happen like the Tulsa TikTok rally. I think that makes people, you know, more aware. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, they're looking at the whole, uh, the government is looking at the anti-competitive practices, you know, of all, of, of many of the big tech companies. And there was a report on that. And I actually just wrote a piece on that, which will be coming out as well, yeah. you know, which, you know, really comparing the de facto monopolies we have today to what happened in the, um, the days of the robber barons, you know, back in the, the Rockefellers and the, the Carnegie's and the J.P. Morgan's and how it was an environment of, tr of, of trying to build monopolies. That was the actual goal. Um, so, yeah. And if you were to like place a bet, like how likely do you think we would get to, for example, a splinter net or even just to like match the Chinese policy, right? Like we can't launch games in China without a Chinese partner and getting a Chinese license. If we were to bet, how likely do you think that we would at least match them on the other side or just completely block some of the Chinese games similar to what India has done for, you know, 57 apps in, in India? You know, I think it depends on on who gets elected, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, I think if Trump gets reelected, there's there's a chance that there might be more of these types of kind of protectionist policies, which would, uh, you know, put bans on there. Um, I don't think would go quite as far as China has gone or as India might go, where you need to have a local partner on everything. But I think, you know, there will be more ramp up. I, I mean, good news and bad news. Trump tends towards wanting protectionist policies, uh, but on the other hand, I don't know that he has the attention span to really, <laughs> to to really get into this into that level beyond you know banning a couple of very prominent players uh, and saying, okay, I've taken care of that, right? I solved that problem. So, yeah. so you know, uh, but but it could. I mean, if that becomes more of the policy, uh, and and you think how he tied it into this uh, patriotic. Uh, you know, re-education effort, right? <laughs> Which sounds a lot like, you know, things that happen in, in communist countries and in Nazi Germany, uh, you know, then you start to think about, well, if you really want to do that, you have to start to ban certain content as well. Right? Uh, and, and then there could be wider implications for that. So it's possible, but it really depends on Congress, 
you know, it, it's ironic because Republicans tend to, tended to be ones that favored free trade uh, in the past, and Democrats tended to be you know ones that tended towards protectionism, and so we have kind of a weird reversal going on. Um, so I, I, I think it could grow bigger than it is today. I don't think it'll grow to the level of what China and India are doing uh, for the U.S. side, you know, on our side, yeah. And speaking of the weird world that we live in, I thought we could talk about the last book that you published, which was The Simulation Hypothesis in MIT Computer Sciences Shows Why AI, Quantum Physics, and Eastern Mystics All Agree We Are in a Video Game. So I was hoping, Riz, you could just kind of set this up for us in terms of what are some of the hints that you're seeing or why do you think we are in a simulation? Sure. Well, you know, I I was... uh a big fan of science fiction that kind of raised this question, you know, going back to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and when they had uh, the holodeck episode where Data played Sherlock Holmes. And there was a character in the holodeck that uh, Professor Moriarty, who uh, realized that he was different from these guys. They came from somewhere outside of the reality. And he was playing. And then, of course, in, in 1999, there was the, the release of The Matrix, uh, which you know really put forward this idea in a way that everybody could understand that we are living in a computer-simulated reality, and all we really see is what's being beamed into our brains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was considered science fiction, but you know, as our uh, video game technology has evolved, and you've seen the recent you know, Unreal Engine demos, we're getting better and better fidelity. Uh, And in fact, you know, distinguishing between reality and digital is becoming harder and harder. I mean, if you look at a movie like Blade Runner 2049 or even the recent Star Wars films, the special effects start to meld. Like, whereas before you could kind of tell, okay, this is CGI and this is real, right? It's starting to get to the point where that's harder and harder to do and the effects are kind of blending in more naturally. So, um, you know, a couple years ago, I was playing a virtual reality ping pong game Um, and you know I put on the headset and I was playing this game and it wasn't even like a super high resolution game Um, nothing like the special effects that I'm talking about but the responsiveness was so good I actually felt like I was really hitting the ball so much so that at the end of the game I decided to put my paddle down on the table and lean against the table and of course I, I was in a room without a table and I just had a headset on and so, you know, the, the controller fell to the floor. And that's when I realized, okay, we're, we're starting to get to the point where, you know, we would be able to immerse ourselves so heavily um, into an, a virtual environment that we could really forget that there's another world out there. And so the impetus for writing the book originally was for me to think about what would it take for us to reach what I call the simulation point which is the point at which we can build these ultra-realistic simulations. And so I laid out a series of stages, you know, which included photorealistic virtual reality, augmented reality. But, and on that front, we're moving right along. And the areas that really would be required, though, are more like brain-computer interfaces, right? Um, which are starting to, to get attention with Elon Musk and Neuralink and some of the other companies that are out there. And especially within the gaming world, you know, there's, I, I wrote an article called, you know, BCI for Video Games, which went over some of the companies out there that are doing this. I mean, right now it's still fairly basic. They're either using EEG or they're detecting the nerve cells. You know, in a first-person shooter, uh, there's a company that you know it'll it'll detect the stimulus so that you don't actually have to press the mouse button. It'll give you like a 200 millisecond advantage, you know, <laughs> in a first-person shooter because it's getting it right from there. And so uh, I laid out those stages. 
Uh, and it looked like we weren't that far away from being able to get there ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the reason this idea is taken seriously now, even more seriously now, is there was a professor from Oxford named Nick Bostrom who put out a paper in 2003 called, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? And he laid out an interesting philosophical argument, and he said, look, if any civilization, and say in the galaxy, ever got to that point where they could generate an ultra-realistic simulation, then they could generate lots and lots of them. So there would basically be millions of simulated worlds with trillions of simulated beings in them, um, and there might only be one base reality. And so if you just say, what are the odds that you, if you were a being, you're a simulated being, or if you live in a world that you were living in a simulated world versus a real world, there's many more of those than there are those. Therefore, the odds are that you are in a simulation. And so, you know, he put that argument forward, you know, almost two decades ago, but now that our technology is getting to the point where we may be able to to build uh, these uh, simulations like the Matrix uh, within 100 years, well, what would a civilization that has a million years on us be able to build, right? It right. um, doesn't have to be a million. It could be a thousand years. What would video games look like in a thousand years, right? right? Assuming the civilization doesn't blow itself up um, and, you know, doesn't uh, stop uh, doing computer technology <laughs> like, uh, you know, like in Dune, we have the new uh, Dune movie coming out. And in that world, their uh, kind of biggest... Uh, religious tenet is, you know, thou shalt not build a computer in the form of a human brain. <laughs> so unless, you know, these things are banned, certain technologies are banned, uh, you know, we will see development get to that point. And so then that goes back to that argument that who's to say someone hasn't already gotten there. So that was kind of the original impetus for for looking at, looking into this. Right. And I, I think I watched a talk with you at Google where you talked also about some hints that you're seeing in physical reality that kind of makes you think that we are actually living in a simulation or video game, like the observer effect and things like that. Yeah. you talk about some of those things? Uh, Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I looked at different findings in in physics, uh, you know, what's happened with physics over the last I don't know, 100 years or so is uh, there was a famous physicist named named John Wheeler. And, you know, he said that when he started his career, everything was a particle. Like they thought the world consisted of physical particles. You know, and then quantum field theory came out and then they thought everything was a field of probabilities. Uh, he goes, and then in the 80s, he came up with this phrase, it from bit. And he said, well, at, at the bottom level, if you really look at it, there's no such thing as matter. It's just information, right? Uh, when, you, when, you, when you keep like opening up the box, it's like, it's like the Russian nested dolls. And you get down and say, well, what is a particle? He said, it's a series of yes, no decisions, right? And what does that sound like? It sounds like bits right, of information. Um, so there, there seems to be a growing consensus, even within you know, the f- physics world, that the universe consists not of matter, but of information. And, and there's a whole branch now called digital physics. And, you know, when Stephen Hawking talks about black holes, you know, he talks about can information be lost uh, within black holes. And so information science, you know, there's a famous saying from uh, Mark Andreessen here in Silicon Valley about software. And he said this like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, he said, software is eating the world. Right. And what we're finding today is that information science is eating all the other sciences, right? 
Um, and so, so that was one aspect of it, uh, is that the, the universe may be information after all. Another aspect that's, that's really boggling about quantum physics is the observer effect, right? And so this is this idea that uh, when you look at something, it's only then that it becomes actuated reality. Uh, and a, a good way to talk about this was Schrodinger's famous cat. Right? Most people have heard of the cat. And the idea was you put the cat in a box with a radioactive material so that in one hour, the cat has a 50% chance of being alive or 50% chance of being dead. Now, what the observer effect shows us is not what common sense would tell us is that the cat is either alive or dead. We just don't know because we haven't looked in the box. You know, But it can only be one of those possibilities. But what quantum experiments tell us, and these have been confirmed, is that there's a state of superposition of the cat. It's actually existing in both states at once, uh, is a dead cat and a live cat. And it's not until someone observes the cat that that probability wave collapses down into a single possibility. And so I thought about it and I said, well, you know, if you think about this from a video game perspective, right, if you go back to the 80s and you say, well, how did we build video games? Like there was a, a fun game called King's Quest. I don't know if you remember this game. Again, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of dating myself here. But the way we did video games back then was you laid out all the bits of the screen and you fully rendered that world. And then you had the next part of the world and it was fully rendered and you just stored all these bitmaps on disk and you just loaded them. So it was a pre-rendered world, right? That's not how we do video games today, right? So if you ask somebody back in the 80s, can you, uh, you know, render something like a World of Warcraft, you know, a full 3D world? They say, no, there's not enough computing power <laughs> to keep track of all the pixels in a really fully immersive 3D world. There's no way we could do that. Well, what happened since then was you had games like Doom with the first person perspective. 3D modeling has come up. And so really, you know, we render the, the whole point of these engines, like the Unreal Engine and Unity, what are they good at? They're good at 3D rendering, right? And, and keeping track of the information. So we keep track of our 3D worlds as a set of information. And then the engine renders only that portion of the world that you can see, right? So if you and I are in the same room in Second Life, we're not really in the same room, are we? Right? My computer is rendering your avatar next to me in that world. And your computer, your rendering device is rendering you know, my avatar next to you. But you could basically think of it as conditional rendering. And, and so, you know, some people think that quantum uh, indeterminacy, which is the observer effect, could be an optimization technique, right? And so that you're basically saying you don't have to render the whole physical world. You only need to render that which has been observed. Now, just like we do in computer science, you know, we have caching, right? So if somebody's been in a room, we may store some information about who else is on the room. Uh, and we may cache some things to make it quicker. And so given the fact that we have a bunch of observers on this planet, right, this whole planet is fully pre-rendered at this point. So it's not like the Earth is going to stop being rendered <laughs> because there's enough observers now. But what if there was there were no observers for you know a million years on the Earth? Then what would happen, right? It gets back to that idea of if the tree falls and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound, right? Uh, and, and, you know, this is a debate that's been going back many, many thousands of years. So it's not a new debate. Going back to Plato and his, his allegory of the cave and you know, also Descartes, who said in his meditations that if there was an evil demon that was deceiving me or I was in a dream and I was basically getting all this information, to me, it would look like reality, right? Uh, but how do I know 
that that physical rest of the world is real. I can't really know that for sure. All I can know is I'm here and I'm thinking, uh, right? I think therefore I am is sort of the, the origin of that famous phrase. Um, and, and so those are some of the things in, in the world around us. You know, another question is, uh, is the world pixelated, right? And we talked about information being the fundamental unit, but uh, there's, a, there's like a smallest length, the plank length, right? Uh, that we can't measure anything below that. You know, why is that? Is that because that is like the pixel of our universe and anything below that, you know, can't have any values. And so, so there's a lot of kind of mysteries around uh, not just quantum physics, but different branches of physics. Some people think that time is quantized as well. We don't know that for sure yet. The experiments haven't shown it. But, you know, the way we build simulations and computer games is we have a clock, right? Uh, and everything happens based on that clock. And that clock is some multiple of the processors, the CPU clock, right? We can't get any lower than that. Like, you know, we can't really do much below that. And so is there a fundamental quantization of time? It's an open question. But so all of these things lead me to think that, you know, we live in a world of information that gets rendered uh, as opposed to a physical world that's out there. And Riz, for you, is this more of an intellectual exercise or is this what your belief system is? Do you believe that we are in a simulation? Well, so I started off as more of an intellectual exercise, right? Uh, And the more I looked into it, the more I realized that, uh, you know, this is a model that incorporates everything. I mean, one of the biggest debates in, in, in physics and science has been, you know, what is consciousness? Right? Does consciousness exist? Is it simply an emergent property of biology? So if you put together the right neurons, will you get a conscious entity? And of course, this is within the AI world, you know, a big topic of discussion. Uh, but even within the physics world, it goes back to you know, Max Planck, who's sort of the grandfather, the great-grandfather of, of, of quantum theory, um, where he, he actually thought consciousness was primary and matter was derivative. Right? The prevailing scientific view today is that matter is primary and consciousness derives from that. So if you just arrange the right molecules in the right way so that there's neurons and everything else, then consciousness will just result naturally. Uh, but So this is a big open question. And I think this presents itself in the simulation uh, hypothesis quite, uh, quite well. And it was one of the things that I like to talk about which not a lot of people who talk about simulation talk about is what I call the NPC versus the RPG version of simulations. And so, you know, this is a gaming blog, so people know what NPCs are, right? Uh, So we have, you know, AI characters within games that are running around. And so most people, when they talk about the simulation, they're actually saying we're just a bunch of NPCs that are, you know, computer programs running on some giant computer. um, And we don't really exist outside of it. But if you think of the Matrix... In the Matrix, every single character that was, not everyone, but you know, the main characters that were inside the simulation, Neo, also existed outside the simulation. So he had the BCI in the back of the head, the brain-computer interface, and he was role-playing a character, an avatar, in the simulation. Right. And so for me, I found that that's actually a more compelling and interesting version of the simulation hypothesis because it turns out, you know, science is looking for truth, but that's also what philosophy philosophers have been doing for thousands of years. And that's what religious people uh, and scholars and mystics have been doing for, for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and so I, I would argue that every single religion was founded when someone 
peeked outside the simulation and he saw what was there and came back and tried to describe it to people. Like imagine trying to describe to people in Fortnite what our world is like. Okay, it would be very difficult to do because, you know, or in uh, Minecraft, right? <laughs> right, where everything is blocky and say, well, everything's not blocky here, right? So, uh, you know, so I find that even the different world's religions to me are kind of like the three blind men and the elephant, right? You've probably heard that story where, you know, one says, they're all touching this elephant and one says, oh, it's like a snake. And one says, no, it's like a house. One says, no, it's like a tree. They're all touching the same thing, but because they can't see, they, they, they don't have the full perspective to know they're all talking about the exact same thing. They're just talking about it differently. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, it's actually, you know, part of the reason why I included the, the section on mystics. So you know, what, one area that I get dinged from people in the engineering and scientific world is, why did you devote a third of the book to talking about mystics and religions? I actually think it's a really important point. Turns out, They've been telling us all along that this is not the real world, <laughs> that this is a game that has been set up for us. And particularly if you go to the, the Eastern uh, you know, traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism, I mean, they're literally telling us we come in, we, we download our consciousness into a, an avatar. We play that avatar just like you, know, you might play uh, an avatar uh, and then we die and our consciousness gets uploaded and we store information about what just happened somewhere. Where? In the cloud. It's called karma, right? <laughs> And so they've literally been telling us this, but they didn't have the terminology of computer games or video games. So, so it's gotten to the point where I actually think it's a useful model. Like it's almost religion 3.0 in a way, right? Um, if you think of like the old religions as being one model. And the younger generation, everybody plays video games, so they will understand this much better uh, than, you know, the old kind of traditions of heaven, hell, you know, these types of things. Um, and also, you know, when we design video games, we have quests and challenges that are laid out. And so, you know, I found, and I don't think we're really going to have too much time to talk about, you know, some of my other books, but, uh, you know, one of the aspects that I like to talk about is that each of us is called to do different things, right? Uh, you know, you're called to do this podcast, right? I might be called to write. Some people are called to, you know, go mountain climbing and spend, you know, the 10,000 hours you need to be. And I have no interest in spending 10,000 hours climbing mountains. Why is that? What's the difference in personality? Uh, I say those are our individual quests. Like, you know, in, when you choose a character, and you kind of have the different characteristics of the character. Maybe you did that with your current avatar. You chose the different characteristics and then you chose the storylines and you chose the quests and you still have some free will within that storyline. Just like within a video game, I might be able to you know, shoot somebody or not. I can make that decision. Uh, I still have free will, but I might still have certain quests and challenges that I'm meant to do. And so I find when difficulty happens in life, if we think of life as a video game, it provides a very different perspective and it says, well, maybe this is a quest or a challenge that I chose for myself uh, because our game is different than Grand Theft Auto, right? That's not why we're here. <laughs> you know, uh, we may have different goals. We may have different achievements and we may level up in a completely different way. Uh, and it kind of helps to put things in perspective and it also bridges the gap between like all of my friends in the scientific world who are very materialistic. It says everything is based just on, um, you know, atoms and bits uh, and those people that believe there's more. Turns out the simulation hypothesis is a bridge. Uh, and so I've come to think of it as more than just an intellectual exercise, but as something that really, you know, ties into my perspective about how the universe works and our role in the universe. You know? 
So it kind of it's a very optimistic view. I hope you're right. So it, so you're saying that we're more players in the simulated universe rather than NPCs, which would then to me also have two implications. The first being that you, so am I correct in thinking that you believe there's an existence outside of this current life we live? And two, that you don't think if it is a simulation, you're saying it's not deterministic. There's this element of free will in this simulation. Right. So I think that if if you have an NPC version, then you get rid of the, the free will. It's entirely deterministic. But you know, why do people run simulations right, in the first place? It's to see what will happen, right? We might run simulations to figure out, um, you know, will uh, how will the weather change, right? And this ties to the whole idea of, you know, chaos theory and um, um, computational irreducibility, uh, which, uh, you know, Stephen Wolfram talks a lot about, which is that to find out what would happen, you have to run the steps, you know, like like if, if you have like orbits of stars, uh, you know, you get back to like the three body problem and you have these three bodies, you know, orbiting each other and say, where will they end up? Can you predict it? Well, you almost have to run the simulations to figure it out. You can't just do it. And so this is why computation is so important. Uh, and so, you know, one perspective is even if it was deterministic, you don't know how it's going to how it's going to come out because you may have to run it and there may still be little things that change. Uh, very, you know, the whole idea of chaos theory is small changes in initial conditions, tiny differences in initial conditions with the deterministic set of rules, like in fractals, will complete very vastly different outcomes. Um, and so that's, you know, one aspect of it. I, I do prefer, as you, as you said, the, the RPG version personally, which is that we actually do exist outside of this. Uh, and I believe to a certain extent, you know, we have some free will. But I also believe to a certain extent, we have certain storylines. Just like if you're a good video game designer, you make it seem like to the, to the player that they can, you know, they have free will. And they, they, they do to a certain extent. If they're playing the game, they make choice A or B or C or D. But the choices that can be made are probably been limited by the designers of the video game. And if there's enough choices, it looks like it's an infinite number of choices, right? But I do think that we have certain storylines. Like I keep coming back to that because I think that's an important part of it. Uh, and that there's part of us that exists that's here to see how this is going to uh, end up. And I think we sign up for certain things, <laughs> you know, in that game. Uh, and so those things probably are harder to change. You can ignore them. You can not take the challenge, you can say, you know, challenge not accepted or this quest isn't accepted or, you know, I'm going to have a quest with that person and it's this type or that type, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of where, where I would come out on that, you know? Got it. And maybe moving on to the second book, which was Startup Myths and Models. And I think a focus of that book was that it, from the title seemed to be to try and teach some specific lessons that you don't learn in business school. And so maybe could you set that up as well as far as the premise and why you wrote that book? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, the subtitle of that book was supposed to be what you won't learn at Stanford Business School because, <laughs> you know, that's where, I, <laughs> that's where I went to business school. The problem is it was published by Columbia Business School Press. And so they said, well, we can't put Stanford in the, in the title, <laughs> in the subtitle. But, you know, when I was in business school, uh, we learned a lot of models about, you know, how e economics works and there would be these kind of graphs, supply and demand curves, and you probably remember those. 
and uh, you know there were equations you could use, and there were you know net present value for figuring out the valuation of companies. Um, and and I remember seeing all that stuff, and and you know I thought about my my time in the startup world, both before and after that, and I realized, yeah, you know a lot of that stuff doesn't apply <laughs> to startups, right? Because these are very early stage companies and the market is evolving so fast, you obviously can't value a company based on on cash flow because there is no cash flow, right? Uh, and if you look at, you know, why did Google pay $2 billion for Oculus? There's no equation that's going to tell you that, right? And so a lot of what happens in startups doesn't have a good framework or ways of thinking about it. And so I come up with some models of my own and I take some existing models that are out there um, and we pull those into, that's the models part of startup myths and models. Uh, and then there's the myths and the myths are like advice that I've heard over and over again. Uh, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say I debunk the myths, but we use the myths as a starting point to say, what's the real issue here? So, you know, one of the myths is you have to build a billion dollar company, right? And so that's, tossed around a lot in the startup world, particularly in Silicon Valley. It's like, I'm going to build the next unicorn. And then you, you kind of unpack that and, and you realize that, you know, when people often who built billion dollar companies, when they were starting out, it wasn't clear that this was a big enough market to support multiple multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, in fact, you know, when I was back at, uh, in, in undergrad at MIT back in the 90s, um, you know, we, we had this program where we went to Japan for the summer to work. And uh, one of my classmates, actually, you know, Mitch, he was a co-founder of several of my companies. You know, he went to Japan one summer and he met this guy named Jerry from Stanford. And he had a little podunk thing that was like a list of like, you know, 20 websites or something. And he thought it was going to be a real company, right? Well, it turns out that company was Yahoo, right? So it ended up being a multi-billion dollar company eventually. But at the time, it was just this podunk thing where he was just experimenting with it. And so, you know, the best way to build a billion-dollar company may be not to try to build a billion-dollar company. There's too much of a focus on that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's an example of the type of myths that I go through, you know, in the book. Um, and you know, there's a bunch of other ones relating to different aspects of raising financing, of starting a company. You have to be first to market. You know, that's something you hear a lot. And that's a myth that's been debunked a lot as well. And you realize, well, there, there actually are real benefits to being first to market, but there's also real issues uh, where, you know, the, the pioneers are the ones who get the arrows in their back, right? Using that old saying. And if you look at Google and Facebook, I mean, these weren't the first companies to do what they were doing. They figured out a way to do it. Uh, but oftentimes there's a new platform that's emerging, right? And so you want to be the first that does something well, on, uh, on a platform, but you may want to be the first few, <laughs> right? You don't necessarily want to be the very first. You want to be one of the first few so you can figure out from, from the mistakes. On the other hand, Oracle was the first, you know, uh, SQL, relational database that really made it to market before IBM did. And because of that, they were able to build a very large relational database business. And so, so it, these myths are more complicated than the rules of thumb that we toss around in Silicon Valley often when we hear advice. You know, another piece of advice is raise the most money you can get or try to raise the least amount of money you can get. <laughs> and that's what I call a set of dueling myths, right? What's the right answer? And, uh, you know, the answer is it's complicated. Right? Uh, there are times when you don't want to raise any money at all. And so raising the least amount of money is the best thing you can do for yourself. There are other times when you need to raise the most amount of money because you're in a market that requires it and you're going to be left behind. 
But what happens is in Silicon Valley, everything tends to be, you know, we think of ourselves, uh, we're hammers or everything is a nail, right? Um, and so we think all startups have to be built the same way. Uh, well, it turns out venture capital isn't the best way for a lot of companies, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of good companies here that fail that if they were started in a different city and without a free access to half million, million dollar seed rounds, they may actually succeed, but because they had such an easy access to, you know, these seed, pre-seed and seed rounds and they were able to get, uh, you know, a series seed, late seed of a couple of million dollars, then they run through that money and they fail, you know, they might've been better off with raising a, a lot less money and figuring out the business model that actually works and that scales. And so, you know, uh, which might take longer. I mean, it may take a while. You know? right. Another one is fail, fail, uh, you know, um, fail fast, right? <laughs> uh, and pivoting, right? So that's, you know, one of the, the big ones that people toss around. Uh, so you can pivot to something else. Is that is that the right answer? It turns out it isn't in some cases. <laughs> and in other cases, it is. So for example, there was a company called Life360. You know, they started back in 2008 for people who had smartphones to be able to keep track of their um, family members. Uh, and so, you know, the, the most common text message in the world uh, the founders of Life360, Alex told me, uh, was, you know, where are you, right? <laughs> so if you could just replace that text message with an app. Now, his company did not take off for many years. Uh, and so people were telling him they should pivot to something else, right? In his case, he waited, and there was an inflection point in about 2011 when there were families that had more than one smartphone, right? Because if you think back to the early days of smartphones, usually there was only one in the family, right? Maybe two, right? You're getting in 2010, maybe they had two. But it wasn't until families had enough smartphones, and in this case, it was probably the kids had Android phones because the cost, that suddenly they started to see the network effects. And now they're probably one of the most downloaded apps ever, right? With hundreds of millions of downloads. That said, there are plenty of other examples where, you know, fail fast and pivot quickly was actually uh, the right approach because they realized what they were doing didn't work and they had to pivot to something else. Uh, and so, so the book kind of unpacks these myths um, and, and uses, you know, my experiences in the video game industry a lot and uh, experiences of uh, VCs that I interviewed uh, and other entrepreneurs. So, so, you know, those are some examples of the myths that, that we use. Riz, if you were going to give specific advice to some of the gaming startups today, is there any like specific advice you would give them to try and be successful in today's market? Uh, well, you know, one of the uh, one of the models that I built in the book um, uh, is what I call the startup life cycle, okay. uh, and, this, and it's the startup market life cycle. So this is not about the, the life of a specific startup; it's about how the market as a whole evolves. Um, and so, you know, there's an old saying, uh, and there was there were some VC firms that that you know they did some analysis to say. Uh, let's take all the different factors of what makes our company successful. Management team, the amount of financing they raised, uh, the, the market, um, you know, the technology, intellectual property. And they said one, one factor outweighs all the others, and that is the stage of the market, right? And so there's an old saying that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And so, you know, when I was doing mobile gaming back in 2010, uh, it was a relatively small industry. Uh, and so we were able to get Tap Fish built very quickly. You know, I think we spent like twenty five thousand dollars on building it, and then we spent twenty five cents per install. 
to get users. And we were able to do that to get to the top of the app store. And then once we got there, people saw it and there was a built-in virality. And so you know, it wasn't that hard if you built a good game in those days to at least get the attention the game needs. Now, the game has to be good for people to continue playing it and to tell their friends about it and all of that. But so it took a small amount of money. Uh, and that's when you know there was a lot of opportunity in that industry. And so over time, that started to the cost of building games went up, right? Uh, I mean, I remember in 2015, Kabam saying they spent, you know, millions of dollars per game. And I mean, with your experience, I'm sure you know how much was spent, you know, by some of the, the big companies in building mobile games. It's not $25,000, I can tell you that, right? <laughs> I'm sure. And how much do you have to spend to market the game, right? right? And so what happens is that the valuations of companies go through these kind of almost predictable stages, uh, and and you know f- from three to five times revenues to you know ten plus revenues to back to three to five times revenues, uh, and that depends on the stage of the market. And then finally, the market gets mature and becomes a multi-billion-dollar industry. And that's what mobile gaming today is a pretty mature industry. It's a seventy billion-dollar you know a year industry, and so there are public companies that are based on um, uh, profits. Their values. Getting back to what we learned in business school, it's all based on those formulas now, PE ratios and all that stuff. Um, and so, my advice to somebody you know building a gaming company now is to to find a small market <laughs> that where you can be a player without spending lots and lots of money. Like that's almost a better way to go. Uh, and if you find a small market that's growing, and now you know mobile gaming is too broad of a term, you'd have to find a sector of mobile gaming that is a small but growing and more popular segment because it's that growth that really matters it's not the size of the market today um and so you know what is that next phase of gaming right is it skill-based gaming right skills is going public right now uh with real money tournaments you know is it virtual reality gaming there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, optimism around vr games back in 2015 and 16 but then you know the number of headsets just didn't uh, pan out. So unlike the iPhone, right, where, you know, hundreds of millions and then billions of people are using it, the number of headsets, I mean, it's in the millions, but it's still pretty small for VR headsets. Um, and so, you know, I'd say find the next platform or the niche that's growing that's underserved, as opposed to I'm going to build the next Fortnite or I'm going to build, you know, the next Pokemon Go, right? Pokemon Go, before they released that company, Niantic, Right, uh, had raised something like thirty million dollars, and so you know, if you're somebody who has access to capital, then that's fine. You know, you should go after, <laughs> you know, one of those markets. Like, you know, um, it was a Jam City was founded by uh, uh, or, or was uh, acquired by Krista Wolf, who did MySpace and had the five hundred million dollar exit. So fine. So he had a, he had access to capital. He could afford to jump into the mobile game space and the casual mobile game space uh, and buy companies and do all that. Most people who start out as entrepreneurs don't have access to that kind of capital. Uh, so what, but what's more important than the capital and the size of the market is, you know, is, is there a, a small niche that's growing that you can really jump into and, and make a difference on? I, that would be my advice to people in the gaming industry. Yeah. Riz, I know we're over time, but maybe the one last question I could ask you is, so your last book, Treasure Hunt, Maybe just explain the basic premise and why people should check it out. Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I talked about being at Stanford Business School, and uh, I remember in, in one of the classes, uh, we had a decision modeling class. 
And the idea was, this is how you make decisions in business. And what it was was a spreadsheet class. We, and we built these really uh, you know, complicated spreadsheets and you plug in the numbers on the left and you get output A, B, and C. And you look at the best number and you say, that is the, the, the decision we should make. And I remember raising my hand in one of the classes to our professor and he had written the textbook. I mean, literally he wrote the textbook we were using on Excel decision modeling. And I said, Professor Moore, what if you change the, the, the number on the left? Because, well, then everything changes on the right. He said, well, how do you know what number to plug in on, on the left? Because in mature industries, the past equals the future, right? And so, uh, but in startup markets, the past does not equal. If there's one thing that's certain when you're doing a startup is that the past does not equal the future. <laughs> he said, well, that's where you have to use your gut. You know, you have to use your intuition. And so I thought about it a lot. And, and so, you know, Treasure Hunt is really about learning to use your intuition in business and in your career. And, you know, I've known entrepreneurs that were great entrepreneurs. And if you logically did looked at X, Y, and Z, it would say, you know, the decision would be choose X, but they chose Y or Z. And like, why did they do that? It's because they had a hunch. They had a gut feeling about it. Um, and so within, you know, that framework, I brought up ideas of deja vu and synchronicity and, you know, where do we get our ideas from? Um, and so that book is all, you know, which could come from anywhere, really. Uh, they could come from, um, you know, in our dreams, right? Um, there's a great story that I, that I tell uh, about a young filmmaker named James who was in Italy working on some B movie and he had uh, an illness and he couldn't go to the set. He had this kind of feverish dream of uh, he saw these robots coming to kill him after <laughs> uh, after some kind of an apocalyptic uh, fire, you know. And he woke up and he's like, what the hell do I do with this? So he drew a picture of it and his friend, Gail, told him, well, why don't you try to write a story and a screenplay. And that ended up being The Terminator, right? Uh, which ended up being very uh, instrumental in James Cameron's career and Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. And now not all of our hunches or intuitions are going to be that dramatic, but I believe we have gut feelings, we have hunches, we have intuition that can guide us, which is kind of like the, the traditional, you know, if you think of the left brain versus right brain uh, approach, right? Is uh, taking an intuitive approach, and then validating it with, with the left brain spreadsheets. Because you still have to justify what you want to do to your investors, to your business partners, to your managers, right? So you still have to do the left brain work, but sometimes, you know, a hunch can, can, can point you in the right direction. And so Treasure Hunt is all about trying to bring those two together uh, in a way that is uh, fruitful to you. And so this ties back to what we were talking about in the simulation hypothesis, where I believe we all have things we're called to do, uh, and our quests. And so, you know, what is true success for me might be different than true success for you or somebody else in a different industry or may have nothing to do with work, but learning to follow our hunches and our intuition. That, that's what Treasure Hunt is all about, following the clues. You know, I always say that an Indiana Jones film like Raiders of the Lost Ark would be pretty boring if he just got the map at the beginning and said, oh, here's the X, there's the Ark of the Covenant, go get it. That's right. not how it works. <laughs> a video game would be boring too. The way it works is you get one clue and you follow that clue and where does it take you? To the next clue and to the next clue. And if you follow those clues, they may take you to whatever is your own personal definition of career success. Yeah. Got it. All right. Well, Riz, thank you for a very interesting conversation. I have a lot more questions, but we're limited on time. But yeah, thank you so much. It was very interesting. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. All right. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye.